The old pilot's plain tales. Buckeye 2. VA 859 was called to active duty in 1951. For those not familiar with the US Navy, the designation VA refers to the unit's role as a fixed wing attack squadron. A little while later, it was designated Attack Squadron 85, and it served with great distinction for 43 years, fighting in the Vietnam and Iraq wars, as well as other important duties, such as covering US Marine landings in Lebanon and carrying out airstrikes over Syria, Bosnia and Libya, to name just a few. The squadron initially flew Sky Raiders, but in 1954 it had moved on to the extremely capable A6 Intruder. On its aircraft's tails, it bore the squadron's insignia, a black falcon. The 85th's illustrious history had its fair share of heroes, but one of its members was awarded the Navy Cross. The United States' second highest decoration for valour in combat and awarded for extraordinary heroism. Only the Medal of Honour has precedence over this award. This is the story. The A-6 flew some of the most challenging missions going in Vietnam. The nature of the intruder and its role, flying low-altitude attacks in foul conditions and often alone, led to what had been described as an A6 particular loss, where no one could truly establish the circumstances and there was a disproportionate number of A6 crews on the missing in action list. When the Black Falcons entered the fray aboard USS Kitty Hawk in 1964, this was their very first deployment with the intruder. The Buckeyes, as they were also known, got off to a troubled start with their new aircraft whilst converting in California, with the loss of two intruders in a mid-air collision. Although they were not yet to know it, they were going to suffer more losses. Their CO was killed during a night strike north of Haiphong, along with his BN, his Bombardier Navigator. And only a couple of months later, another aircraft failed to return after attacking a group of trucks. Then a third machine was destroyed when it was hit by AAA, but at least the crew were found and rescued. The squadron had their successes as well, but the losses would continue when four months after the CO had been killed, his replacement died during a night strike near Vinh. This made the second CO that they had lost on this deployment and the third since they had started flying the A-6. The following day, another aircraft went down on an anti-SAM mission, and then it was the turn of the new CO to get airborne in Buckeye 1 with Lieutenants Bill Westerman, pilot, and Brian Westin, BN, in Buckeye 2 on his wing. They were scheduled for a reconnaissance flight down a road in Route Package 2. A route package was the name given to describe one of seven numbered areas in North Vietnam that were used to deconflict between air operations being conducted by different arms of the US military. Out of interest, RP-6 was considered the most dangerous airspace in the world. It covered both Hanoi and Haiphong. 
when the air war started, the entire North Vietnamese air defence system contained only 22 early warning radars and four fire control radars with 700 anti-aircraft guns. By 1967-68, North Vietnam was firing 25,000 tonnes of anti-aircraft ammunition a month and their equipment had grown to 400 radar sites, over 8,000 anti-aircraft guns, 150 fighters and 200 SA-2 surface-to-air missile sites around the country. Buckeye 1 and 2 were to be armed with Mark 82 500-pound bombs, but just before they manned their aircraft, the ship received a report that a mass of barges had been discovered near the mouth of the Venn River. The staff of Carrier Task Force 77, apparently short of officers experienced in TAC Air, tactical aviation, changed the formation's weapon load to napalm and ordered them to attack the barges. The A-6 crews were delighted with the new target, but screened blue murder about the change in weapons, but to no avail. The crew were rightfully concerned, because in those days, napalm had to be dropped from low altitude and airspeed to successfully detonate. This was going to make them vulnerable. They climbed aboard their aircraft, started and taxied the short distance out to the catapult launcher. In turn, they lined up, the hold bar was put in place and the bridle connected to the aircraft. Below the deck, the steam pressure built behind the huge piston connected to the shuttle in the track in front of the intruder. With their Pratt & Whitney J-52 turbojets blowing 18,000 pounds of thrust into the blast screen, the crew saluted and prepared for the launch. When the moment came, the aircraft took just 250 feet to accelerate to 140 knots and then they were off the deck and climbing away. Once they reached their rendezvous point, they prepared to head for the target. There was just one little snag. In Buckeye 2, every time Brian, the BN, tried to talk to his pilot on the intercom, he also transmitted on the radio. It was only considered a minor annoyance, so they turned towards the enemy. The two intruders had briefed an attack that had the lead going in first, followed by his number two in loose trail, making an independent run. It didn't take long to get to the target. It was only two or three miles inland, and the barges were there, ripe for destruction. Buckeye One made his pass, and the napalm canisters tumbled off his aircraft down towards the mass of boats. When they hit, the sticky fuel burst out into a vast cloud, and then the ignition charge fired, creating a huge fireball that engulfed the target, setting much of it alight. Bill Westerman lined his A6 up with the barges. There was no missing the location. The fireball in front, which marked the target, was slowly shrinking as he descended down to his release height. The water of the delta glistened below as he rushed over the mud banks and swampy vegetation. He began to line his sights up on the target when there was a loud bang from the front of the aircraft and Bill felt a blow to his shoulder. He instinctively pulled back on the stick and Brian beside him keyed his intercom and shouted, Are you hit? 
His words came out on the radio as well, and for a moment the lead aircraft thought that he was talking to them. Just as they were about to reply, they heard the mayday call. Bill was trying to fly his aircraft, and Brian was telling him to stay down out of the danger height for Sam's, but Bill was in trouble. He was feeling nauseous, and then things began to go dark. In the A6, the pilot and his BN sit side by side, with the pilot on the left, but there was only one set of flying controls. Brian, the BN, sat a little below his pilot on the right, and in front of him were the sophisticated weapon controls and the synthetic radar terrain display that he needed to do his job. The one thing he didn't have were any flying controls. As Brian slumped, Bill reached over and grabbed the stick. He wasn't trained to fly the aircraft, but he knew enough to keep them airborne even though he was flying by leaning across the cockpit. He put out a mayday call and then clumsily turned the intruder out towards the Tonkin Gulf. In a field behind them, near the barges, a farmer lowered his old 303 rifle. He had fired a couple of times at the attacking A6s, but had no idea if he had hit them. He was pleased, though, when they veered away. He slung his rifle back over his shoulder and went on with his work. What he didn't know was that one of his rounds had been right on target. The bullet hit the lower left corner of Buckeye 2's canopy and penetrated. It would have probably been a clean wound, but the round shattered against one of Bill Westerman's cock fasteners that connected his body harness to his parachute. The bullet debris ripped the left side of Bill's chest open behind his armpit, glanced off his ribs, barely missing his heart, and leaving his arm and hand unusable. Bright red blood sprayed from the wound all over the cockpit and his vision blurred and then narrowed whilst waves of pain flowed through his body. Wiping the blood from his face and seeing his pilot going in and out of consciousness, Brian kept the aircraft under control. He remembered the little bottle of flight surgeon's brandy in his nap bag, and grabbing it, he broke it open, and after feeding it to Bill, revived him enough to get his attention. The closest airfield was Da Nang, but flying that far was out of the question, as was landing back on the Kitty Hawk. Brian could see that Bill wasn't going to last long without serious medical help. The shock was setting in. Their only option was to abandon the aircraft, but at that time, the A6 didn't have command eject, and it was usually the BN's job to eject first. Bill ordered him out, but Brian refused. He didn't want Bill to fall unconscious while on his own in the aircraft so he insisted that the pilot go first. In the meantime, Buckeye 1 was racing up towards their stricken wingman, and as they approached, they watched the canopy come flying off the A6, shortly followed by an ejector seat. It was like the intruder stopped in mid-air, and Buckeye 1 sailed past. After the violence of Bill's ejection, and with the slipstream buffeting him, Brian tried to get the A6 back under control. He eventually gave up 
and with the aircraft descending through a thousand feet, he pulled his ejector seat handle. He was immediately hit by the 18G force of the main seat gun firing, and within a second or two he was gently floating down towards the water beneath his parachute. Buckeye 1 had turned back hard to find their wingman. They had only seen one ejection, and spotting only one dinghy not far from the impact point, made when Buckeye 2 hit the water, they assumed that Bill hadn't made it. By now, a flight of rescue caps, spads, sky raiders that is, arrived to relieve Buckeye 1, who turned towards the carrier. The spads began doing their job. They tried mustering help for the downed crew, and a VIP-configured SH-3-seeking helicopter, which had been monitoring the search-and-rescue frequency, responded immediately. Tuning their ADF box to 282.8, they followed the needle as they descended down towards the crash site. After just a few minutes, they hove into view, and spying Brian's green sea-dye marker and his orange dinghy, they circled, went into a hover, and dropped a strop down to him. As soon as he was dragged into the helicopter, Brian shucked his cumbersome water wings and made a beeline for the cockpit. Shouting over the noise, he told the crew that his wounded pilot had ejected first and was in the water a few miles closer to the coast. Hearing the news, the spad started searching, but spotting the pilot wasn't going to be easy. The leader was coming up to the mudbanks in the estuary when he thought someone was shooting at him as a tracer round flashed past his nose. He dropped his wings and looked down into the eyes of Bill Westerman, who was floating in red-stained water beneath him. Frustrated by all the aerial activity within a few miles, Bill had managed to use his one good arm to lever his pencil-sized flare gun out and carefully screw a mini-flare onto the top. As soon as someone came close, he took aim and fired, nearly hitting the spad. Soon the seeking was over the spot, and they lowered the strop, but it quickly became obvious that the injured pilot couldn't climb into it. The VIP helicopter had no swimmer on board to help, so without a moment's thought, Brian jumped back into the water. He unhooked the horse collar that Bill couldn't use, which promptly sank, and then used the hook to attach Bill's harness to the wire. Within moments, the now unconscious pilot was safely aboard, and the wire came back down, but since Brian had shucked off his harness earlier, he had no way of attaching himself to it. He knew Bill needed medical help soon, so he waved the helicopter away, and was soon alone in the water again. Treading water and watching the fins of sharks attracted by Bill's blood circle around, he had a chance to ponder his impulsive actions. Brian was tiring and finding it hard to keep his head up, but then he remembered some wise words from his survival training officer, and he reached down to undo his G-suit. 
Once he got it off, he blew into the hose and inflated it enough to keep his head above water, and just as importantly, with all the sharks around, his legs up. In the nick of time, a UH-2 Sea Sprite search and rescue helicopter arrived on the scene, and the Spads gratefully turned the rescue of the poor BN over to them. They were just in time, as the sharks weren't the only threat. Hostile boats were closing in fast, and it was with a sigh of relief that Brian Westin was hauled up into the helicopter cabin. Although it was touch and go, the injured pilot, Bill Westerman, survived and went on to have a distinguished Navy career. Apart from his Purple Heart, he was awarded two Distinguished Flying Crosses and six Air Medals. His Navy tours of duty included the aircraft carriers Forrestal, Independence, Kitty Hawk, John F. Kennedy and Dwight D. Eisenhower, from which he flew the A-4, A-6, F-4, F-14, F-18 and S-3. He rose to the rank of Captain and after his service worked for McDonnell Douglas and Boeing. In 2006, he was inducted into the Golden Eagles, the Naval Aviation Association, which he considered his highest honour. He passed away in 2010. For his actions during the Vietnam War, Brian Westin was awarded the Navy Cross. Part of his citation states, Lieutenant Junior Grade Westin waved the helicopter off and remained in the shark-infested water until the arrival of a second rescue helicopter. Through his quick thinking, cool courage and selflessness in the face of grave personal risk, he was directly responsible for saving the life of his pilot. His heroic efforts were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.